This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I'm a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. In this episode, I spoke with Renee, who you will remember recorded her first episode a few weeks ago about her first surrogacy journey, which resulted in the birth of Ethan. In this episode, she talks about her second surrogacy journey and all the trials and tribulations of going through a new process with new intended parents and how they did things differently, but didn't actually get the outcome that they'd wanted. I'm going to hand over now to Renee. Hi, it's me again, Renee, Aussie surrogate. And if you've heard me waffle on in my last podcast, which was a couple of weeks ago, you're going to have to listen to me waffle on again because I've got a bit more to tell in my story. We pick up from after I had surrogate Bubba. That was the end of 2014. I'd had the postpartum hemorrhage and everything was going great with intended parents. I got my health back. And I just got that niggly feeling inside that, said that I wasn't finished, that I wasn't finished having a baby or having babies. Not for myself because I would have ended up in a straitjacket in a padded room, but for other people so I could pass on that love to them. So I started thinking about it and and trying to talk myself out of it, but it just felt biological that I wasn't finished being pregnant so I tentatively brought the topic up with hubby and he was, he's just flat out said, no, I don't think it's a good idea. He said, with everything that you went through with your health, I don't think that it's a good idea. So I left it for a little bit. And then I broached the topic again a little while later and, and basically the compromise that we came to was that we would have a debrief with the medical team at the hospital that we birthed at to try and work out exactly what happened with the hemorrhage and if I was to carry again, what would happen at the birth. So it took a little while to get an appointment with the midwives. They were really great and really receptive and and had a meeting with us and said, on a scale of 1 to 10 of severity, that it was probably about 7, which hubby was surprised about. They said they'd definitely have me back in the midwifery care again, although I would be birthing in the birthing unit as opposed to the family birthing suites. And they would just change some aspects of my care, no delayed cord clamping, medication to release the placenta straight away, um, waters breaking and induction if I went over 40 weeks. All of this I wasn't great about, but I knew that they would be compromises that we would have to just live with if we were to go again. So I let Hubby sit on that for a little while and I wasn't really looking for his permission. It was my body and I was entitled to do what I wanted with it, but I really wanted him to support and I wasn't going to do it without his support. So eventually he came around and said, all right, well, let's have a talk about all of the things that we thought were great about the last journey and some of the things that weren't so great and some of the things that we might change if we went down the path of surrogacy again. So we had a chat about things like counselling. Some people don't know that Victorian legislation for surrogacy doesn't mandate any counselling beyond that that gets you approved by the patient review panel. So there's nothing to say that counselling has to be ongoing either during the pregnancy, before getting pregnant or after the birth. So a lot of other states have relinquishment counselling post-birth. So what we decided was that if we were going to go with new intended parents that we would want more counselling during the pregnancy and also to have a session post-birth just really as a debrief. And that was one of the main things that we spoke about that we were willing to implement. So we, I, I'd been just in background digging and 
stalking on a few people. At this stage, you know, I'd already made a lot of relationships in the community because I'd been in there for a couple of years. So I'd had a short list in my head of, of intended parents. There was about six that, um, that stood out to me. We still wanted to do something local, so Melbourne-based intended parents or Victorian-based intended parents. So I bought him a list of candidates, I guess you could say, and we took a really structured approach to whittling that list down to a couple of names or a couple of couples. Again, we didn't have any specifics about who we would carry for. It was just based on who we thought we would get along best with. So on that list were singles, couples, gay, straight, and people with kids, people without kids, people who'd had traumatic experiences, people who hadn't. And so we got together and wrote a list of pros and cons for each lot of intended parents. And it was quite interesting to get Hubby's feedback on what he thought about about those pros and cons, some of the things that I thought were pros, he thought were cons. So we would all the list down to two and then we had a little bit more of a conversation and eventually we settled on a couple who we thought we might like to approach. Obviously thinking that, you know, they also had to be receptive to us. So that was done sort of the middle of 2015. I'd been speaking to this intended mum. Um, one of my friends had approached me about being a surrogate and I thought, oh, these guys would be perfect for one another. And so I was trying to facilitate a little love arrangement between them. And the more I spoke to her, the more I, I liked her. And then in the end, there was some stuff that happened and my friend decided that surrogacy wasn't for her, which was fine but that seed was further planted in my mind. So we invited them over to our house under the guise of offering support and we had a big chat about everything and their history and they're lovely people. We found out that we were pretty much all the same age, so intended dad-to-be was the same age as my hubby. They were born about three months apart and then intended mum to be and I were born about four weeks apart so we'd grown up listening to the same music and watching the same tv shows and so we already had that sort of connection and when we told them that we we might have been interested in establishing a relationship they were really surprised and grateful and thought it was great one thing that they'd taken steps to overcoming was their grief about their inability to carry, which was through counselling independently and together so that they could really get their heads in the right frame of mind to tackle a surrogacy arrangement and all the intricacies that that involved. So I, I and Harvey also really liked that they were proactive about what they'd been through and what brought them to here and, and how they would be able to support the surrogate. So their history was that um, intended mum-to-be, when she was about 27, received a cancer diagnosis and although the treatment left her with a uterus, that treatment basically disabled any um, ability of hers to carry so she wasn't actually able to to fall pregnant they done emergency fertility preservation so they had some embryos on ice which again was a positive because we didn't have to worry about the embryo making procedure which can take a lot of time and quarantine and everything like that so what appealed to to us about them was the fact that we could hit the ground running but, of course, we wanted to establish that relationship. 
first. So that was in the middle of 2015. And then towards the end of 2015, we offered my uterus to them and over a glass of rosé at a nice restaurant and they gratefully accepted. So for the rest of this podcast, I'm going to affectionately refer to them as Kit Kat. Kit being my intended mum and Kat being my intended dad. And so Kit and I got along like a house on fire. We just messaged all the time. We had so much in common. We looked alike as well. People used to ask us if we were sisters. And she was just, she's, she's got a beautiful soul. She's really mild-mannered and we very much shared a lot of personality traits, albeit I was a bit more loud and boisterous. And the boys were just content to sit back and have a beer and watch us explore our relationship together and, and you know, have a good time and be silly with one another. We went out on a few dates and we did the same thing that we did with our first intended parents, you know, the getting to know you game and the, the hard questions night. And... And by the time 2016 rolled around, we were pretty much ready to start the process. So because we had gone through the process in Victoria before, we were able to cut a couple of internal counselling sessions out, which enabled us to go through the process a lot faster. And in the time that we'd gone through our first surrogacy, they'd actually streamlined the process through the clinic a lot better. Uh, There was still a fight to try and get multiple appointments and things like that. We had to be flexible about the times that we wanted them. However, we actually managed to get through everything and receive PRP approval in about five months, which, you know, at that stage with that clinic was pretty much unheard of. I think we'd broken a world record so they were pretty great about what we wanted to bring into the surrogacy arrangement based on our experience previously. They were fine with extra counselling sessions and they were fine with the way that the birth was going to go. And because... Kit hadn't experienced a pregnancy or a birth or anything like that before. My thoughts on hubby and I carrying that together started to change and in the end the decision was made that Kit and I would take hypnobirthing classes together and she would be my birthing support and we started talking about playlists and you know, just dreaming and imagining about what it was going to be like, which was really exciting. And and they were so excited about the prospect. And although my previous journey was wonderful, I, I definitely appreciated that excitement aspect that came from this new relationship. So we got approval and then we went to see the fertility specialist and originally, having I'd been told that they had six um, day five embryos frozen, and they, they were under that impression as well. But once we spoke to the fertility specialist, she actually said that it was six day two embryos because way back when Kit had her emergency fertility preservation undertaken, the the standard protocol was to freeze at two days. So because she no longer had the ability to create any more eggs to make embryos, it was decided that instead of doing a thaw of the embryos and growing them to day five, that we would transfer the day two one at a time to see how we went and to try and give them the best chance of, of sticking. 
So I was very vocal about not wanting a medicated cycle after everything that I'd gone through in the previous surrogacy with, you know, reactions to medications and having to be on them for so long and my body not um, being receptive to progesterone. I just really wanted to bring things back. So what we settled on was that I would, we would track my ovulation, I'd have blood tests and then I'd have a couple of injections of pregnal. So that would basically trick my body into thinking that I was pregnant and get my body to generate its own progesterone, which I was happy to do, even though it involved self-medicating um, in terms of needles in the tummy. So everything was agreed on in terms of the natural cycle and we started to, we started to track my cycle. What we found out very early on was that I ovulated a little bit later, so they, they called it having a, a short luteal phase, which is basically the second half of my cycle was a little bit shorter. So I was ovulating a little bit later than anyone anticipated, but it wasn't anything that was going to be an issue with conceiving. So I dodged a bullet, didn't have to have any meds. And the first transfer came up and we were all really excited. You know, they'd been told way back when they did um, the emergency fertility preservation that they had at least one baby in that hall and the fertility specialists had told us that our odds were that we should fall pregnant within three transfers. And you really hold on to that. So we were excited but we were like, hey, it's probably going to happen you know, if it's not this time, it'll be in the next couple of times. So if it doesn't work, yes, we'll be upset, but we know that it's going to happen for us. So got in the waiting area, exchanged some gifts, we were laughing and giggling and just having a good time. And, you know, it was a real upbeat atmosphere. Went in, had the transfer done, had the jab of pregnal, another couple of jabs a couple of days later. <clears throat> and we started the, the two-week wait and pregnant tricks your body into thinking you're pregnant. So you get all of the symptoms, you get sort of a heaviness in your uterus and sore boobs, a little bit of nausea here and there. <coughs> so you really don't know if you're pregnant or not. So blood test time rolls around and... I pretty much started getting period symptoms on that day. So I didn't think that it had been successful and it wasn't. Um, and yes, you're upbeat about it. Yes, you know that it's going to happen and you know that it might not work the first time. But, you know, those feelings still come back. Was it me? Could I have done anything differently? And you just sort of toss that feeling aside and you go, all right, I've, I've got to mentally prepare now for the next transfer. So the next, next month rolled around and, again, we bounced into the, into the clinic, happy, excited, exchanging gifts. I got a nightie to wear, so I, um, I got that from Kit Kat. So I surprised them by wearing it in the transfer room, which, you know, the, the fertility specialist thought was a hoot. And another embryo, two days, got implanted. Again, we went through the pregnal. This time, Kit gave me the injection in my stomach, which was an interesting experience for both of us. And again tricky pregnancy symptoms and I started spotting on the day that the blood test was due. So once again, we got a negative. And then I started to feel the pressure creeping in because those words were ringing in my head again. You've, you've got at least two babies in that bat, at least one baby in that batch and it's probably going to take up to three times to work. So it's like, well, we're still on track, but if they want to have a full genetic sibling to this baby, 
I've really got to conceive this third time. So we went back to back again. So this is the third month in a row, tracking cycles, blood tests, scans. And the third embryo was transferred. This time there was a little bit of a different feeling about it. There was still excitement there and positivity, but it was a bit more subdued than the last couple of times. Went through the same rigmarole again with the pregnal and the symptoms and getting my hopes up. And again, started spotting or getting period symptoms on the day that the bloods were due. So the third little day two MB hadn't stuck around. At that stage, I was really questioning myself. I was questioning whether I should have done a medicated cycle. I was questioning whether I, in any way, contributed to these negatives. No, they didn't have a finite supply of eggs. Kit couldn't just have a, another egg pickup. So... What was really important through all of this time is that we'd allowed each other to grieve these negatives, but we also continued communicating as well, which was good. And they were so reassuring to me that, that they were so hopeful and that they knew that I hadn't done anything wrong. And, you know, and that was really good. I, I really appreciate it and I needed it because, you know, those doubts are really starting to eat away at me and, you know, we'd, we discussed before the transfers that, that we were going to have something called annual leave and it stemmed from me taking a break when I was pregnant through the last surrogacy that any party at any time could call annual leave and it basically meant that they just wanted some time out and a step back from everything. And the other party had no need to worry. And it was just basically, please don't contact me until I'm ready to talk again and I'll, I'll contact you guys. So we'd implemented this in our discussions. And, you know, we may not have spoken to each other for a couple of days throughout some of the negatives and that the hard times, but none of us said we wanted any annual leave and we went back to the facility specialist basically for a debrief to say, all right, well, these three transfers have occurred. We were under the impression that we should have been pregnant by now, so, so what's the next step? And I remember saying to her, is there anything that I can do to increase my chances? You know, can you do any more tests on me to make sure that I'm not at fault, that I'm not the reason why these embryos aren't sticking? So she said, what we'll do is we'll stick you in for a hysteroscopy, not to be confused with the hysterectomy. <laughs> Basically, we put a camera into your uterus and we take a biopsy of your uterus and your lining, which is checking for any abnormalities. You want to make sure your uterus is smooth. And what we'll also do is, is a scratch. So we'll basically rough the surface of the uterus up so that the next time you're growing your uterine lining, uh, it's nice and fluffy, basically. So I was like, yeah, okay, let's, let's do that. So that was a procedure under general anaesthetic um kit came along with me which was good you know she was a good support and laughed at me in my post anaesthetic haze when all i wanted was to eat more tim tams <laughs> sent me home with wheat packs and chocolate and magazines and everything like that that i needed to recover for the next few days and i felt like a that picked up that I'd started, you know, getting a, a clear head about it all that, you know, I'd done, I'd gone ab above and beyond to try and 
do this so the next transfer was going to work, basically. So we had that month's break while I recovered from the hysteroscopy. It, you know, everything came back clear and there was nothing that the fertility specialist suggested that I could do over and above that. And fourth transfer approached, tests, scans, everything like that. And we bottled on into the IVF clinic. And again, we had this renewed sense of hope. My uterus was, you know, in top pristine condition. There was no reason why it wasn't going to work. And embryo, embryo number four was snuggled in tight. So then I still continued on the pregnal and blood test came around and I hadn't had a period or symptoms. So got a call from the clinic who said, you have a positive, but it's really low. I said, oh, Jesus Christ, here we go again. I'm going to have to go through this 48 hours again, just like I did with the last Sarabala and, you know, of worrying whether it was on its way in or it was on its way out. And, you know, I, re I remember throughout this process that my previous intended parents were just amazing. They wanted to know how I was going. They wanted to know how I was feeling. And they were always so positive that I could do this again for someone else. And they were just the most amazing support, you know, beyond family. And they were just like, it's going to happen for you guys. We know it. You've just got to keep keeping on. And, and we know that it's tough. And we know that you you want to blame yourself, but just know that this is the fickle bullshit world of IVF where there's no guarantees. And they said, look at this little boy that we've got that you helped create that was made from an embryo that had a less than 10% chance of working and that we originally got such a low positive. And so I kept up hope that that fourth transfer was going to work. But before I got to the next blood test, I had a period. And I was devastated. I just, I was so devastated for my intended parents, like, that, that they'd been through so much and there was two embryos left and this pressure, this was building, and I think it was building on all of us. We still continued to communicate and our relationship was still great, but there was just this cloud hanging over our heads. And, you know, we there was more than one baby, hopefully, in that batch and that it would only take three goes and that was just kept ringing in my head and, and I kept thinking... I'd done all that I possibly could and this one should have worked. We had an early positive. It should have just hung on. And through, through all of it, they were just like, you know, do we need to see a counsellor? If you want to see a counsellor, you can see a counsellor. And that was so good that, that that was all out on the table, you know. And, and Harvey was amazing, you know. He would let me cry myself to sleep because I just felt so helpless and so useless and and he was amazing you know so there's two embryos left and at that stage we'd done four transfers in what six months we went and spoke to the fertility specialist and she was pretty much at a loss. She said, I think you guys should have been pregnant by now. I don't know what's going on. So she basically said that she didn't want to put us through two more transfers of day two embryos. So her suggestion was that 
They thaw the new embryos and they grow them to day five. And one of a few things would happen. One embryo would survive and the other would not, and that embryo would be transferred. No embryos would survive, and then we would have our answer about, you know, their health. Or two embryos would survive to day five. One would be refrozen and the other one would be transferred. Now, that decision was completely left up to KitKat. It, it, it was their call. I, I was willing to go through another two transfers of the day two embryos if they wanted me to. I think everyone was cautious of everyone's mental health at that stage. And in the end, they made the decision to defrost both grow to day five and let the cards fall how they may. So going through the lead up to that transfer, you know, the pressure again descends. Now, I'll, I've got to tell you, none of that pressure came directly from KitKat at all. None of it. You know, it was all pressure that, I was putting on myself, you know, they certainly weren't saying anything to me about having to have this work or that they needed it to work or anything like that. You know, they, they were amazingly supportive and they were, of course, worried about themselves, but they were also worried about me and hubby and how we were coping and everything like that. Going into that transfer, I was so nervous. I was shaking. Kit had her mum over from overseas and I, I remember crying to her saying, I hope this works. I just want to give you a grandchild <laughs> because like my first intended mum, you know, Kit was an only child as well and I was anxious of that that thing that we'd spoken about last time about that lineage that generation you know and how that made so much sense in my first surrogacy journey but when it came to the second one with that came this this impending sense of pressure and and that it felt like it was all resting on my shoulders. So I cried to her and I cried to them. I don't know if I stopped crying that day because I just, you know, I knew in my heart that it was highly unlikely that both those embryos would survive to five days. So we got called in and the fertility specialist confirmed what I had thought was that one embryo had survived and the other didn't make it. So this was our last chance at getting them a full genetic child and that last chance was being placed in my uterus. And I looked up at the screen at this embryo and my heart sank because it just didn't look like other five-day embryos that I'd seen. And I just thought, I'm going to give this the best shot that I possibly can because the last time a poor little embryo got transferred into me, you know, it became a little boy. So I threw every positive thought its way. I pushed out all of the negativity, I pushed out that pressure and I was just like, this, is, this has got to work. And it didn't. I think, I think surrogates and intended parents go into this thinking that if they find one another, if they have a relationship, and if it's strong enough and it's good enough that there's going to be a baby at the end of it. 
And when you go through all those embryos and you don't get a pregnancy, you just, you just, I just, you just feel like you're smashing someone's heart out. You just feel like, I don't know, it's, It's not what you expect, you know. You make plans <laughs> and you just think that with everything you're throwing at it and that with everything they've been through to get there and with everything we've been through as a team, it, it had to work, but it didn't. So I th we both took some unspoken and you'll leave, or all, all four of us took some unspoken and you'll leave after that. We just, you know, Kit had to mourn her inability to have a genetic child, which was heartbreaking. And I had to mourn the fact that I couldn't give them what they so deserved. So... We took some time and then we we agreed to have some counselling and during counselling the topic of egg donation came up and it was something that they had considered but they hadn't put a whole lot of thought into it. And at this stage, you know, we'd done five transfers in seven months, so starting halfway through 2000 and... 16 it was now the start of 2017 and we basically said you know this has been going on for a while if we are going to go down the path of an egg donor then can we just set a timeline for that that you know this is a huge decision for you guys to make and that if they wanted to go and get another surrogate to carry for them that I would totally support them in that. But if they wanted to get a donor, an egg donor, and have me carry for them, then I would absolutely do that. But, you know, that process wasn't going to be happen 12 months from now. It needed to happen sooner rather than later. So we didn't want to put pressure on them, but we also wanted them to know that we couldn't, put our lives on hold forever. So amazingly and wonderfully, a relative of Kit's put her hand up to say that she would be willing to donate her eggs. And I just was, oh, God, we're back on track, you know. And there's this renewed sense of hope that they're still going to get this baby and that I can help, help them with that. And so they were still keeping us informed, but obviously they were trying to get all of that moving on their side. And, and I was just excited for the prospect and hubby was excited as well. And there was a spring now step again because there was this hope that she had offered them and, and I guess to us. And we met her and her husband and they were great and wonderful and they got approval to start the process and um, she began on the meds and everything like that. And after some, you know, up and downs with scans and, and things like that, she went in for an egg pickup and got, I think it was seven eggs, let's just say for the purposes of this, it was seven eggs which was great, you know, I was doing maths, going, oh, we're going to get a few in the freezer, this is fantastic, and they're going to be day fives. And, you know, I was already planning out my calendar, you know, when was quarantine going to be over and and when when was my cycle going to be? And, you know, at that stage I was at, at uni, so I was like, you know, when's the best time to transfer so it's not going to... Um, 
impact exams and stuff like that. So, you know, I'd gone on the pill for a little while just to try and, and, and get things lining up to where we all wanted it to be. So I remember saying to Intena Mum, you know, the process now is basically we sit back and wait, the, the eggs will fertilise and then we won't really hear anything for five days because they're obviously growing, they don't want to disturb the embryos and then at the end of that five days they'll say how many they've put in the freezer ready for quarantine. And so that was sort of it. And then I got a call from Kit the next day and she said something that I just hadn't even fathomed, I hadn't even considered. And I was about to pick the kids up from childcare centre and she just burst into tears and said, none of the eggs fertilised. And I just, I burst into tears. I just didn't know what to say. I just thought all of this renewed hope and then nothing. And it, it was, it was like this slap to the face to all of us. And it was all six of us now because it was, it was Kit Kat. It was myself and hubby and it was the egg donor and her husband. And we were part of this amazing team together now. So zero eggs fertilising just, it, I just couldn't comprehend it. So then you just fall into that pit again when you're thinking, is this ever going to happen? And eventually, after a few months went by, or a few weeks went by, their beautiful egg donor decided that she wanted to have another go and another cycle. So the fertility specialist put her on a different protocol and off they went again. We were about, I think an egg pickup was scheduled on a Monday and it was about a Thursday or Friday and Kit rang me and basically said that they made the decision to cancel the egg pickup because it had become apparent that she wasn't responding to the IVF drugs in the way that she should have and the likelihood of them getting a good batch and having them fertilise and survive to five days wasn't looking likely. And again, it was a smack in the face for everybody, in particular Kit Kat, who had gone through this process of hope again and that, you know, this great woman had offered to keep that genetic link, that family link. And we just went, well, what the hell happens now? You know, it was obvious that their donor was not going to go through another cycle, which was fair enough, you know. And Kika didn't want to put her through another cycle. And by that stage, I think we were all feeling pretty disillusioned with clinic. You know, that clinic had said, you've got at least one baby. That clinic had said, who'd said, you should be pregnant in three transfers. And that clinic who said, that's okay. We'll just change her to another lot of medication. And if that doesn't work, we'll just change her to another lot of medication. And eventually we'll get some eggs and eventually you'll make some embryos. Well, the eventually wasn't good enough. You know, she, she was a woman who put aside her, her life and her family to try and give them eggs 
and to sort of be treated like a commodity that they could just keep pumping drugs into to try and get this this elusive egg out of was really disheartening. So the decision was made to, to not go any further. And I just, I just thought that we could have done more. You know, what else, what else could we do? You know, we don't want to put them through anything else. Would they look at another egg donor? And I'd had offers come out of the woodwork. But they didn't eventuate for any number of reasons. And then I started thinking, maybe I could use my eggs. Now, I'd always said to everybody that I would never be a traditional surrogate. I couldn't really articulate why other than that there's already three children out there with my genetics and God help us all if there was another one because, you know, my kids are crazy. I'm a little crazy. So do we really want that running around? <laughs> and I just didn't want to be one of those people who just says, oh, yeah, we'll just use my eggs and get a baby without really thinking about what that meant really thinking about what they meant. I just didn't want to say it flippantly. And this is something that Hubby struggled a lot with when I first brought it up. And to him, I was going back on a promise. To him, I was, I was going back on when I said I would never be a traditional surrogate, I would never use my own genetics or never use my own eggs, you know, not that I had lied, it's that I'd said that I would never do something and then now I'm considering it. So we had a lot of chats about it. And I said, I don't think that I would have just gone into a relationship with intended parents and said, here, I have my eggs. Some women do. I have no issue with that with them at all. It's their bodies, it's their decision to make. But for me, I couldn't have done it. I said to him, after everything that we've gone through together and the fact that we have come out of it and we still have this wonderful relationship and even though everything that's gone on has been pretty shit, we can still have a good time together and we can still laugh and we can still appreciate one another's company. I said, if that's not a reason for me to consider traditional surrogacy, I don't know what is because, you know, we know them. So we, we tiptoed around the idea for a little while and, and basically what, what I wanted to do was approach them on the topic and then say, but we all need to really think about the implications of this type of thing. So I asked if I could get counselling, which they agreed to because I just wanted to talk about how we came to be here and my reasonings behind the decision and whether from that perspective, that was the right reason to go into offering traditional. Didn't just want people to feel like I offered because that was the last choice and that I was so desperate to do anything I could to give them a baby that I just said, hey, take my eggs. Um, so we spoke to the counsellor a lot, you know, and... And she spoke to Hubby about his feeling that I'd gone back on a promise and she said, you know, imagine you're walking along a path and you always expected that path was just going to lead to your destination and that destination was your baby, you know, that you were carrying 
the baby that you were carrying for your intended parents. And she said, but then he hit a T intersection and you can go one way or you can go another way. You've got to make a decision on a way to go, but it's not the path that you were originally intended on travelling. And I thought that was a good analogy in terms of perspective and what we'd gone through and that, you know, the decision was up to us about whether we chose to offer that. And it was nothing to do with pressure. It was nothing to do with being desperate to give them a baby. It was just a choice that we had that we, we needed to make. We also spoke a lot about what it meant to have a child that wasn't yours, that was genetically related to yours and the, the implications with children and their relationships with the child and everything like that. And, and we spoke at length about it and she gave us some really good insights about relationships and the fact that, you know, when it comes to a certain stage, you know, the genetic offspring of a, a person or people, they forge their own relationships and they give it their own names and they're no longer dictated by their parents, you know, who may or may not have given it a label. They may or may not give it their own label with their relationship and, and how they want to progress through life together or not together. And that, you know, there was still stigma around and that they'd still be explaining that we may or may not have wanted to do, particularly with, you know, our parents, you know, with my parents knowing that they had a genetic link to a child. And, you know, the counsellor said that nobody has a right to tell somebody that they can't love a child that's genetically theirs, even though they may not be their grandparent physically, you know, you can't tell them that they can't love that child because there is that genetic link. So I did speak to my parents about it and they were incredibly supportive and we decided to offer to KitKat officially for me to be a traditional surrogate for them. And... No, it's it's funny about expectations and it's funny about things that you think is going to happen, you know. I never actually thought that they would have had to have made a decision. I always thought that we'd gone through this, we got to this stage, I'd offered my eggs, that they would say, yeah, absolutely, of course. Yeah, cool, done, easy, let's just get on with all the, the weirdness that comes with traditional. Um, but I really respect the fact that they said we need to think about it and we need to work out if this is really what we want. And I was like, oh, yes, absolutely, that's your prerogative. And they declined the offer of my eggs which is totally their call, but it's also something that I totally didn't expect. I'd started to get that hope up again and, you know, remembering our plans of hypnobirthing and playlists and watching Game of Thrones on maternity leave and everything like that, and I'd started to get excited again. And then they said no, and I was just like, huh, okay, all right. And then I was just sort of like, well, what the hell happens now? You know, they made the decision and that's just fine. But I still had this, still had this need, I still had this desire, you know, and... And that was it for them. It just felt so final. And I was and I was devastated for them that they'd made that decision that for them at this stage of their lives, 
they had made the decision that they were not going to be parents, you know, and I could only imagine what that would be like having to come to that decision. Well, I could only imagine, but then, you know, I couldn't imagine, I mean, what a, what an intense thing. I mean, I, I can't find the words to think, to even try and describe what they would have been going through, you know, but then from a selfish perspective as well, you know, I've got my own thoughts and feelings on the subject and I just, all those negatives and that everything just came flooding back and I was like, well, am I supposed to do this now? <laughs> what sort of happened was that when we were talking about traditional surrogacy or when we were talking about egg donors and everything like that was that we'd set a deadline of the 30th of June 2018, knowing that, you know, our relationship had started in 2015 um, because we just didn't want to be perpetually trying to get pregnant forever. So we basically said that if, if we didn't have a pregnancy by that date that we would be walking away. But I think when I said that to them and they took it so well, I didn't expect that that date would come or that a decision would be made prior to that that basically said we're not going to have a baby together. And so I sort of felt that everything that, you know, we we put in over these last few years had amounted to nothing and and that The contributing factor to all of it was basically me and so I started thinking again, what could I have done differently? You know, it, it was my fault, you know, all of that. And, you know, they were wrapped up in their own grief about the decision that they'd made and, you know, we were still talking and still communicating and everything like that. But, I, you know, there was this sense of loss and loneliness because there wasn't many people in the surrogacy community who'd gone through so much and they hadn't had a baby as an outcome. So I felt lost and lonely and confused and, you know, every emotion that you could possibly go through. And in the meantime, they were probably going through a lot of similar emotions. You know, and I, I look back on it now and I think that the very least, the very least we got out of this whole thing is friendship. But that friendship, even now to this day, means so much to us. You know, it's... We've been down in the bunkers together. You know, we've been troops fighting this war together and you know you don't just walk away from that and say goodbye we have an enduring friendship and and that's you know that's the least we came out of it with but it's for not having a baby it's the best thing we came out of it with because you know it could have just dissolved it could have just been too hard there could have been resentment on their part towards me for not being able to give them a baby, you know, and I was so worried about that. But there wasn't. They were just so grateful for everything that we'd gone through together. So <sighs> I still had that feeling, yeah, okay. And hubby was like, this just, this can't go on forever. You, you just can't find new intended parents. You can't go through everything else again because you've got things that you want to achieve and you've got things that you want to do and we can't 
always have surrogacy hanging over our heads. And I agreed with him to a certain extent. <laughs> but, you know, I'm stubborn. Um, so I started to go and get a few checkups done, medical checkups and things like that um, for some general health issues that I'd been having for a long time and got diagnosed with an affliction, I guess you could call it, and in order to in order to help with that, I needed to have something called an endometrial ablation, which basically means that the inside of your uterus is essentially burnt and it renders you unable to have children. And so I had originally said that I wanted to have this done for you know, multitude of reasons after I'd finished having children. And after being told that I had this affliction and that I needed to have it done, Sooner rather than later, I started thinking that choice was being taken away from me. <laughs> and outwardly I was saying to everyone, yeah, I'm fine with having it, I'm fine with having it. But in reality, I was really struggling with the fact that the last surrogacy journey had not ended the way that we wanted it to. And now I was getting something done that was really finite. So I got it done and my uterus was forcibly put into retirement. So I won't get that chance again. And it doesn't sit well, <laughs> I'll be honest. And I would never ever begin to compare myself to a woman who's had this taken away from her, you know, before she had children or while she was having children. You know, I feel very fortunate to have my own children and very fortunate to be a surrogate. But, you know, I... I've, I, I still feel I still feel lost so I've removed myself from the surrogacy community because it's just a bit raw you know, I've been in it for five years. There's so many amazing women to pass the torch to who have an ability, probably more so than myself, to offer support to surrogates and intended parents and everything like that. And I feel like it's just that... I almost feel like this podcast is my goodbye. <laughs> I have so many friendships, so many people who I've come to know and adore who I never would have if it wasn't for surrogacy, you know. And, and those friendships don't stop just because I'm stepping away. Those friendships will remain and I will still support those people in any way that I can on their journeys to being a surrogate, being a second time surrogate or a 50th time surrogate, or to have a baby or babies through surrogacy. No, that's, that doesn't change. But I think that over the last five years, I can say probably somewhat selfishly that I've given enough, I think. I've given enough of me. 
I've left a legacy of this beautiful boy. <laughs> but it's time to shut that door now. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up, so I have to work that out. And as I said, you know, this community's turned from this tiny little bunch of people into this flourishing, amazing support group for everybody. And, you know, if there's one other legacy that I leave behind besides this little, you know, four-year-old bundle of energy, it's that hopefully I've helped put down some of those foundations for people to provide and receive support through the community and through others. And for that, I'm incredibly proud of. And I think that, you know, the best things are yet to come for surrogacy in Australia. And, you know, I wish that everybody who comes into this gets everything that they want and everything that they desire. And I really hope that, you know, that they get that baby out of it at the end. That's, that's what I hope for. And I hope that people don't have to go through any more hardships or any more struggles, that they can just, you know, make that family or add to that family or become that family that they always dreamed of. So, yeah. I think I've waffled on for long enough this time, so I'm going to sign out again. Um, yeah. I know everyone that's listening will really join with me in thanking Renee for sharing her story, um, particularly given that she's not active in the surrogacy community anymore, but she has contributed so much to the community over the years and her legacy it goes far beyond just making a baby. If anyone would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram or at sarahjefford.com.